According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Once again, we find ourselves in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah this morning is chapter 14. Thirteen weeks ago, we began a series in Isaiah, and we have been faithful to maintain the pace, one chapter per Sunday. And so we arrive today at Isaiah chapter 14. Not typically thought of as a standard Christmas text. We will nevertheless handle the passage as we've handled every passage, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. And uh, we will thank the Lord for bringing us through the scriptures as he has done so. We've already seen quite a bit in terms of the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Remember that back in chapter 7, we have seen wonderful counselor, prince of peace, almighty father. We've seen that from chapter 9. We've seen quite a bit already. We've seen the root and stem of Jesse in Isaiah chapter 11. So we did quite a bit of Christmas preaching in the uh, weeks leading up to today. For today, though, we want to pick up where we left off last week. We started with our study on Babylon from chapter 13, and that leads us into a taunt song of chapter 14 that we need to, uh, need to handle very carefully. So let's open with a word of prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the word of God. Let's bow for a moment of prayer to humble our hearts for the authority of doctrine. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do acknowledge your glory, and we thank you for the blessings we have to assemble together. We thank you, Father, for the faithfulness that you have manifest from generation to generation. We thank you for the generation we just saw and singing the, the hymns that they have been taught and that they're learning. Father, it's a, it's a blessing and a delight to know that uh, as you have been faithful with our grandparents and our parents and us, so too, Father, will you manifest faithfulness to our children, to our grandchildren. Thank you, Father, for the truth of your word, for the glory of your plan. We ask for your blessing upon our time of study today as we uh, turn our focus on a passage that takes us to the very deep things, the fall of Satan and his rebellion against you. Father, is featured in this chapter, and we want to understand it for what it is. I do thank you, Father, for brothers and sisters that study to show themselves approved. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we... uh, Got a good start, I thought, last week in terms of chapter 13 and giving you the background for Babylon. And uh, very quickly, if you just take a peek at chapter 13 and verse 1, this is the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. And it is not a happy message. This is a message of warfare. It's a message of judgment, of wrath and destruction. And uh, the day of the Lord, as we see in verse 6, wail for the day of the Lord is near. Basically, there's nothing you can do about it. You can't stop it. Uh, all you can do is wail. That's, that's the one option available to you. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. And this is a, it's a harsh chapter. But it catches our surprise because in the day and age in which Isaiah wrote it, Babylon was not the dominant world power. Assyria was the dominant world power. Babylon is still a province within Assyria. Babylon has not yet risen as it will rise when Nebuchadnezzar, when Nebuchadnezzar's father, Nabopolassar, will overthrow the Assyrian government and will, will uh, stage a revolt that will lead to the rise of what we call the Neo-Babylonian Empire. That hasn't happened yet. 
And yet Isaiah is writing prophetically for the empire that is being addressed. Not just Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon, but understand that Babylon represents the totality of Satan's program against God. And so if you missed last week, I would encourage you to get on the website, austinbiblechurch.com, look at the Isaiah link that's right there on the front page, click that Isaiah link, and re-listen, even if you were here last week, re-listen to last week's message from Isaiah chapter 13, because the uh, concept of Babylon is foundational. Babylon takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 10 and Genesis chapter 11, the establishment of Babel, the Tower of Babel, the rebellion against God is as old as, as the nations themselves. And moving forward in prophecy, Babylon is the featured enemy at the end of the age. Babylon is who's featured in Revelation chapter 17 and Revelation chapter 18. We have Babylon that's featured in the end time prophecies as it relates to Jesus Christ in his second advent. So we have to be very careful when we deal with Babylon in each of these chapters. Uh, You might recall last week when we described the downfall of Babylon here where it's never inhabited ever again. It becomes a haunt, is what we're told. At the end of chapter 13, uh, it will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Where where are those places? Archaeology still can't agree that they found them. Every time they say, well, we think we found them, they're not entirely certain. There's the best guess at this point. That's how thoroughly destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah have become. Likewise, Babylon is promised to be destroyed in that fashion. And that did not happen historically. That's why we have to handle chapter 13 in a very cautious way. It will never be inhabited or lived in from generation to generation. Well, when Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon was destroyed, it was continued to be lived in for centuries thereafter. It was a center of Jewish population for centuries. They wrote their Talmud. The Babylonian Talmud was written from that very same region. It was highly populated even into Roman times, into Persian times, Sassanid times, Muslim times, on into what we would consider modern recorded history. That region has never been depopulated the way this verse says it will happen. All right? So I will not be lived in from generation to generation, nor will the Arab pitch his tent there, nor will shepherds make their flocks lie down there, but desert creatures will lie down there, and their houses will be full of owls, ostriches will live there, and shaggy goats will frolic there. These are demonic terms. These are not zoological animals in this passage, all right? These are angelic references, demonic references to the, uh, to the demon beings that will, uh, that will be haunting this location in the coming millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Now, that bothers some folks, but just if you've never studied it before, I would encourage you to pursue these studies, pursue the end of the angels, pursue what happens when Satan is bound and chains and thrown in the abyss for the thousand years. Does that mean that every fallen angel is bound in the abyss for the thousand years, that every demon is bound in the abyss for the thousand years? I believe that they are relegated to these particular haunts, these particular locations that are uh, dead zones, if you will, no-go zones in the millennial kingdom regions that become haunts of the demons during that thousand-year reign. All right. Anyway, this is how chapter 13 comes to an end. And fortunately, chapter 13 gives way to chapter 14, because the anger of God gives way to compassion every single time. Remember, God is slow to anger, slow to wrath, but he's abounding in loving kindness, we're told. that The anger of God will give way to compassion every time. The anger of God gives way to his compassion in settling Israel into their promised land. Verses 1 and 2 speak of this. When the Lord will have compassion on Jacob and again choose Israel and settle them in their own land, then 
strangers will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. This happened, by the way, when they came out of Exodus, when they came out of Egypt in the Exodus. There were strangers that joined themselves with them. There were Egyptians that joined themselves with them, called a mixed multitude, a company of Gentiles that walked through the Red Sea with Israel during the time of their Exodus. So too will take place in the second advent of Jesus Christ. There will be Gentiles that survive the tribulation that realize that being a bondservant in Israel is preferable to being free in their Gentile nations. All right? You're pointing. All right? That's interesting. Thank you. The anger of God gives way, gives way to be a why, to his compassion in settling Israel into their promised land. All right? And it is at that time that Israel will sing the taunt against Satan. They're being taught a taunt song to sing against Satan. So continuing on in Isaiah 14, again, strangers in verse 1 will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. They're going to decide that living in the land of promise is better than living in their own Gentile lands. And the peoples will take them along and bring them to their place. And the house of Israel will possess them as an inheritance in the land of the Lord, as male servants and female servants. They will volunteer for bond service. They will volunteer for slavery as a slave of the Jewish nation would be preferable. That gives them proximity to Jesus Christ himself seated on the throne, preferable to living in a Gentile land for those thousand years as male servants and female servants, and they will take their captors captive, and they will rule over their oppressors. And it will be in that day, verse 3, in the day when the Lord gives you rest from your pain and turmoil and harsh service in which you have been enslaved, that you will take up this taunt. This is what we're talking about now. A taunt against the king of Babylon and say... And then following that then becomes the taunt song that's recorded here prophetically in the book of Isaiah. It's recorded in this chapter, but it will be sung eschatologically. It will be sung at the foundation of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. How the oppressor has ceased and how fury has ceased. It's a song to celebrate the downfall of Satan and the entire system of evil that runs this world today. So it is at that time, Israel will sing the taunt. They will sing the taunt against Satan. Now, understand when it says against the king of Babylon, all right? We, we have to handle these passages in what I call a prophetic shift or what I call in a dualistic identity to see the human beings that are being addressed, but recognize that the human beings are walking according to the course of this age, that there is a power behind the throne, And we know this. If you've ever done studies on angelology, you know this. That the powers behind the thrones, unless it's a godly nation that God has preserved, if it is a godless nation, it is in the hands of Satan. Satan runs this world. He's been running this world for a long, long time. We're simply here as pilgrims, as aliens and as strangers. But we have a shift. And different scholars do different things with this. And I think this chapter is tougher than than Ezekiel 28. All right, in Ezekiel 28, we've got a paragraph that's addressing a human being, the, king, the prince of Tyre. And then you have a uh, paragraph that addresses the king of Tyre, right? Or the other way around, in Ezekiel 28. Here it's slightly different. 
Here I'm starting to become more and more convinced that there is not any human being in view in this passage. That everything from verse 3 and following or verse 4 and following is a direct address to Satan himself. How the oppressor has ceased. How fury has ceased. The Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers. See, the scepter belongs to Jesus Christ. But until such time as the Father gives the scepter to Jesus Christ, Satan has been in custody of that scepter. Satan has had dominion since Adam relinquished it to him in the Garden of Eden. We've had an an usurper on the throne of planet Earth. That's Satan himself. Notice in verse 6, "...which used to strike the peoples in fury with unceasing strokes, which subdued the nations in anger with unrestrained persecution." Remember, when God applies His anger, it is short. It's followed by comfort. It has the purpose of our blessing. It has the purpose of our repentance. Satan is under no such considerations. When he strikes with his anger, he strikes and strikes and strikes and strikes. There's no compassion. There's no repentance it's designed to promote. There's no eternal purpose. All it is is the anger of Satan in rejection of the plan of God. All right, and he will keep striking and keep striking and keep striking so far as God, in his permissive will, allows him to continue afflicting humanity. So, what's going to happen here is that the staff and the scepter of Satan are going to be broken, and the nations are going to rejoice. The nations rejoice that the staff and scepter of Satan are broken as Jesus Christ has handed the rod of iron. And they're going to be so thankful, at least to start. At least to start, they're going to be so thankful. It'll be, they'll be singing a different tune a thousand years later. Okay? At the end of the millennium, they're going to be tired of Jesus Christ reigning on his throne. They're going to be demanding that he step down. They're going to be demanding that Satan be released from the abyss. And he will be. God the Father will give them what they demand. All right? And we'll study that when we get to the point of the Gog-Magog rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. But to start with, to start with, that we'd be so happy that Satan's staff is broken, Satan's scepter is broken, and that Jesus Christ himself is Shiloh. He is the one to whom it is due. And Shiloh receives the scepter as the great prophecy related to the tribe of Judah. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Jesus Christ receives the scepter. He rules with a rod of iron. And they're going to be so thankful for this. So we have verses 4 through 6, that uh, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers. It's all broken. That's what it takes to break the power of Satan, is for Jesus Christ himself to come and to conquer. This is a thing that I think people are confused about. Christian denominations are confused about. Believers are confused about because they think that it's our job to overthrow the works of Satan. Not so. Jesus Christ came that he might overthrow the works of the devil. He did what he did in first advent. He will do what he's going to do in second advent. In between, you and I are commanded to put on our armor and stand firm. We put on our armor and stand firm. We are not throwing down Satan. Jesus Christ will throw down Satan when he returns at the second advent of Jesus Christ. And there's all these post-millennial theologies, all of these bad approaches where Christians are trying to transform this world and try to make this world a better place. Trying to bring in the kingdom so we can hand it to Jesus when he gets here. Well, it's not working out too well, is it? Okay? Because the world's getting worse. And the Bible says the world's going to get worse. Evil men and impostors go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
the church will not bring in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus Christ brings in the kingdom of heaven. We want to be very clear on that. Jesus Christ is handed the rod of iron, as per Psalm 2 and verse 9, as per Revelation. Revelation 2.27, Revelation 12.5, Revelation 19.15. Jesus Christ rules with a rod of iron. He has the sharp two-edged sword that proceeds out of his mouth. And he not only crushes the enemies at second advent, but he continues to rule over the Gentiles harshly. It's not a, a velvet glove that Jesus rules with. It is a rod of iron. The reason being because the millennial reign itself is going to be filled with growing rebellion and growing difficulty and growing rejection throughout the thousand-year reign. You might expect so. It's human. We get tired of things. We want something new. We get a new president. We're all rah-rah and on board with that. And then maybe we reelect him and we're all rah-rah on that. But it's pretty quick after that in the first year or two. We're ready for the next guy. Come on, enough of this guy already. Where's the next guy? Okay, imagine... A king who's not up for re-election after four years. A king who's on his throne for a thousand years. You might imagine the Gentile discontent that's going to be expressed more and more and more as those years unfold. And so we see in Psalm 2, hold your finger in Isaiah 14, and we'll take a quick peek at Psalm 2, a prophecy of the coming millennial reign of Jesus Christ. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together. Here's a global conspiracy theory right here. And God wrote about it a thousand years before Christ through the prophet David. The kings take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. The Gentile kings are sick and tired of having dominion over them by the the throne of Judah, the throne of David. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. They can plot, they can plan, they can scheme. They can do everything they can do to bring it about. And at the end of the thousand years, they will be successful in getting Satan released from the abyss and marching behind Satan's banner. The armies of Gentile humanity will surround Jerusalem following the banner of Satan. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. And if you want to read in Revelation chapter 20, you'll find out what happens to that great rebellion against Jesus Christ. It gets destroyed from fire that comes down out of heaven. Jesus Christ doesn't destroy it. God the Father destroys it with fire from heaven, ending the final rebellion of sin against his rule. Verse 5, He will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Anybody that takes the approach in Psalm 2 that fails to recognize that Psalm 2 speaks with from the perspective of an installed king on Zion, on the holy mountain. It's prophetic. It has not yet happened. People today that try to install David, uh, install Jesus, they try to blend the throne of David on Zion with the right hand of the Father, where Jesus Christ is presently seated as head of the church. You cannot combine those two thrones. One of them is at the right hand of God in heaven, and one of them is on earth in Jerusalem. 
You cannot combine those two thrones, and yet they try time and time again. Psalm 2 is prophetic. It's looking forward to the time that Jesus Christ rules on his throne. And when Jesus Christ is promised an even greater kingdom. Verse 7, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. That too is awaiting a future fulfillment. All right. You understand in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ rules over Israel. The greatest land grant that Israel was ever given was from the river Euphrates to the, to the Nile, to the river of Egypt, okay, which I take as the Nile. I don't take it as that little wadi or brook uh, on this side of the, of the Sinai. All right, From the Euphrates to the Nile is Israel, and that's the land grant. That's what Jesus will rule on the throne of David for a thousand years. Beyond the Euphrates and beyond the Nile are Gentile nations with Gentile kings in Gentile boundaries of Gentile lands. Maybe the United States will be one of those lands if we're still around by then, all right? Or maybe the second Texas Republic will be around by then, or who knows? Whatever the Gentile nations will be at that time. And the kings or presidents or whatever of all those nations, once a year will be required to travel to Jerusalem and worship Jesus Christ. And those who refuse get their rain turned off for the following year. Okay? This is part of the rod of iron, the forced subjugation that Gentile nations will submit to. They will bend the knee and they will gradually more and more and more of them chafe at those bonds. And they more and more of them will refuse to go to Jerusalem. I think that's what this, this entire uh, conspiracy is all about. The kings take their stand and rulers take counsel against them. And they start to partner and they start to say, I'll tell you what, I'll go to Jerusalem. I'll keep my water turned on and We'll take care of you under the table, as it were. And arrangements and agreements between Gentile nations in the growing hostility against Jesus Christ for the thousand years. But you'll notice, ask of me, this is Psalm 2.8, ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, even the Gentile nations, the very ends of the earth as your possession. So while he's ruling in Jerusalem with the boundaries, the Euphrates River and the Nile River, beyond those boundaries are the Gentile nations. But God the Father says, I'm going to give those to you also. You're going to get those too. See, for the millennium, Jesus sits on the throne of David and rules as the son of David. But after the millennium, in the new heavens and the new earth, after the millennium, Jesus Christ rules over all humanity. He's the son of David in the millennium, the son of man in the fullness of time. He rules as the son of man over all humanity, the very ends of the earth, the new earth, by the way, once we reach that point. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. In the meantime, during this millennium, during the thousand years, it will not be an easy reign. And Jesus Christ will be forced to administer that rod of discipline. Why are parents given the rod over their children? Because children need the rod, <laughs> all right? Children need discipline. They need structure. They need boundaries. They need standards. And they need discipline to keep them in those standards. So too with Jesus Christ ruling with a rod of iron. The nations require that judgment, that discipline, that authority. And so it says, Now therefore, O king, Psalm 210, 
Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry that you perish in the way. This is one of the most definitive proofs that Israel was expecting God Himself. That the Son of David is also the Son of God. That Yahweh is the only one worthy of worship. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Now I read that whole psalm for a reason because it all comes to focus in Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 has as, as its context Psalm 2 has as its context the conquering of Antichrist, the conquering of Satan, the downfall of Satan, the taunt song that Israel is going to sing against Satan. All of humanity has been waiting for his downfall ever since the serpent tempted Eve. All right? Now Israel will get to sing this taunt song during the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. So you can rescue your finger now. We'll get back to Isaiah 14. But the nations rejoice that the staff and scepter of Satan are broken as Jesus Christ has handed the rod of iron. And at first, they're going to rejoice. The earth rejoices at Satan's departure. You want to know what a fun world this is going to be once Satan's out of here? All right? When he's bound in those chains and cast in the abyss. Verses 7 and 8 here of Isaiah 14. The whole earth is at rest and is quiet they break forth into shouts of joy. Here's a good passage to think of when you see that visualized world peace bumper sticker. All right? When Satan is bound in the abyss, the whole earth is at rest and is quiet. They break forth into shouts of joy. Even the cypress trees rejoice over you and the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you, Satan, were laid low, no tree cutter comes up against us. There'll be more about this as we see because we'll have perfect environment in the millennial kingdom. We'll have peace with the animals again. The leopard, will, the lion will lie down with the lamb. The little child will lead them. So the earth rejoices at Satan's departure. This was part of our Romans series. Remember we taught this in Romans chapter 8. Creation itself groans. Why do we have earthquakes? Why do we have hurricanes? Why do we have allergies? <laughs> Why do we have cockroaches why do we have think about all the things we have in this fallen world why do we have maggots all right because we live in a world of death and decay and sin creation itself groans it was subject to futility in romans chapter 8 verses 19 through 22 the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of god Creation itself can't wait until humanity is 100% redeemed, which it will be at the beginning of the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. Creation will be set free from the corruption, from the slavery, from the thorns and the thistles and the curse upon the earth is the consequence of Adam's rebellion. So the earth rejoices at Satan's departure and the residents of Sheol celebrate his arrival. Remember, when he's bounced out of the earth, he's cast into Sheol. He's cast into hell, into the pit, the pit of the abyss. And Sheol beneath. Sheol is the Hebrew term for the underworld. All right? uh, in, in Hebrew, you would have the earth. You would have the heavens. We have the, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. right? And then we have under the earth. We have Sheol. And Sheol is the realm of the dead. The region, the, the dimension of the departed spirits. Whereby they are no longer on the earth 
but they have not yet ascended into heaven. And Sheol beneath is excited over you. Sheol from beneath is excited over you to meet you when you come. Talk about a long expected coming, right? Been waiting for you to show up. Think about it. Think about it. They, who, who has been inhabiting Sheol for all these years? It used to be there were believers and unbelievers alike, and, and believers went to a place of comfort across the great gulf that was fixed. Unbelievers went to a place of torments. But ever since Jesus Christ descended into Sheol, when he ascended, he brought that compartment of paradise with him. So believers after Christ never do go to Sheol. When we're absent from the body today, we're face to face with the Lord. When a believer dies today, like my mother or Steve Arnold or anyone that dies today, if they are a believer in Jesus Christ, it is absent from the body and face to face with Jesus Christ. That, that realm of Sheol and that compartment of paradise has been relocated. Jesus took that with him to heaven. The third heaven now contains paradise. So, uh, but Sheol beneath, under the earth, Sheol beneath, is excited over you to meet you when, it, when you come. It arouses for you the spirits of the dead, the Rephaim. If you've done some angelic studies, you know who the Rephaim are. And uh, all the leaders of the earth. It raises all the kings of the nations from their thrones all the demonic agents that were used by satan to uh, to run this earth and they will all respond and say to you even you have been made weak as we you have become like us you have become like us all of these tyrants all of these unbelievers all of these uh humans and angels alike fallen angels demons and they are now rejoicing at satan's arrival you have become like us. And that's got to be the hardest thing Satan has ever heard. The hardest thing Satan ever could hear. Because you have become like us is a huge slap in the face to the one who said, I will be like the Most High God. Okay? He took all of his five vows about what he will do, what he will do. And we're going to see them here in these verses. But all of that comes crashing down into the reality that you have become like us. You have been cast into Sheol. You have been confined in the underworld, the netherworld. Verse 11, your pomp and the music of your harps. See, Satan's always had the best music program going. (laughs) It's coming to an end. Your pomp and the music of your harps have been brought down to Sheol. Maggots are spread out as your bed beneath you, and worms are your covering. I love this, especially right before lunch. This is a great message. Okay, you're lying on a bed of maggots, and you've got worms for your your quilt, your bed covering. What a picture, huh? What a picture especially considering the pride and the arrogance of Satan, how he looks at us like we're the maggots, we're the, we're the worms, we're the dust creatures. You realize Satan, all the fallen angels, view humanity as pathetic. We are dust beings. And we are here today and gone tomorrow. He, he thinks of us like we think of gnats or fruit flies or whatever, these little annoying pesty things that are just going to be dead before you know it. Do you have any guilt when you stomp on a roach? None. Zero. That's how Satan thinks about us, okay? And yet look at now what he becomes and the taunt song that is sung against him. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, sun of the dawn. Here we are introduced to Lucifer, 
in the Latin Vulgate, and for all those years that the Latin Vulgate reigned supreme, the translation here of Lucifer gave us the proper name, the given name for Satan before his fall. I prefer the Hebrew. I prefer Halel ben Shachar as the bright shining one, son of the dawn. <clears throat> so I render this as Halel ben Shachar. And if you were with us in our angelology study, we had a whole division of study to Halel ben Shachar that came from this passage. Star of the morning, son of the dawn, or Lucifer. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. And what happens here in these verses is we have these five I wills. So the earth is rejoicing at Satan's departure. The residents of Sheol are celebrating his arrival. I didn't read the second part of that. I read 9 through 11. We also have verses 15 through 17. Here's some more. Verses 15 through 17. Nevertheless, you will be shut down to she- thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Those who see you will gaze at you. They can't believe their eyes, and yet they're looking right at it. They can't believe that Satan himself has failed in the way that he has. They will ponder over you, saying, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? He left his world tohu wabohu in Genesis 1-2. He left his world absolutely devastated after the angelic war of Isaiah 45-17 and Jeremiah uh, chapter 4 and verse 20. When, the, when, shake, when Satan was done shaking the world, the, or the world was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. Genesis 1 2. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdom, who made the world like a wilderness? There's our, I think that's the, that's the tohu of the tohu wabohu combination. Who overthrew its cities? You mean there were cities before the Genesis 1-2 statement? Absolutely there were cities, the angelic cities that preceded Adam and his creation. Who overthrew its cities, who did not allow his prisoners to go home. Who did not allow his prisoners to go home. What happens when you don't allow your prisoners to go home? All right. Adolf Hitler was bound to determine that uh, the Allies were not going to release Dietrich Bonhoeffer out of the concentration camp. He knew the war was lost. He knew the war was over. He knew the Allies were going to be liberating camp after camp after camp as more ground was lost. So what did he do? The order was given to execute the prisoners, to not allow them to be rescued, to not allow them to go home. And I believe we have something similar happening here. And I think it's a testimony, by the way. Somebody asked, have angels always been immortal? We know they're immortal now. Gabriel and Michael and all the angels now are immortal. Were they always that way? Or was it possible during the angelic angelity past that angels were subject to an angelic death of whatever form? Okay. Well, he did not allow his prisoners to go home. Satan's five I wills are contrasted with the Lord's you will. I love this. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Five I wills of Satan right here in verses 12 through 14. Okay. Or 13 and 14. And yet, what does Jesus say in verse 15? He says, nevertheless, you will. (laughs) Here's what you're going to do. Here's what you're going to do. Okay. If you have a defiant rebel who says, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. Wait a minute. The book of James tells us we can't even do that because we're finite. 
come, you who say, let's go to such and such a city and work there for a year and make money and then return. We are but a vapor. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. All we can say is, if the Lord wills, we can do this, we can do this. It's always not our will, but thine be done. But here's Satan. You who have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will ascend to heaven. See, Satan was the greatest of all the created beings, but he was not happy with where he was placed. He was placed on the earth, on the original earth, the angelic earth, we call it, the the pre-Adam earth. He was placed on the earth. He was placed on a holy mountain on that earth. He was called the Christ cherub who covers. He was placed on that mountain, but he didn't like it. He, He felt beneath the angels of heaven. He felt beneath what he thought he was entitled to. I will ascend to heaven, not content with his low position. Failing to identify the fact that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Failing to identify the fact that if we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God, he will exalt us at the proper time. The earth is the setting for humility. It's where Christ came. Jesus emptied himself. Jesus came lowly, born in a manger. He came lower than Satan ever dreamed of. That's why he had the victory Satan never dreamed of. Because he humbled himself. I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. He wants sovereignty over fellow angels. He wants to have sovereignty over his fellow angels, over his peers. He's not originally given that sovereignty. Now he does have a throne. He says, I will raise my throne. He has a throne. But he doesn't like where it's positioned and there are other angels that are not subject to him and he does not like that. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. There's an order of celestial angelic beings. We talk about terrestrial versus celestial when we broke down the different classifications of angels. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north. Now here is the very special seat he's not entitled to, the seat that's at the right hand of God the Father. And only the angel of the Lord is entitled to that seat. And only the angel of the Lord is entitled to that seat once he humbles himself and comes as a man. Jesus Christ is not even entitled to that seat until his victory after his first advent incarnation. He will then ascend as a lamb having been slain. And God the Father will say, well done. And God the Father will say, take your seat until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. But this was a seat that Satan lusted after. And we see it time and time again. We see it in the Gospels. We see it throughout the Scripture. We see human beings reflecting satanic attitudes. Human beings that aren't content with where we're seated. Pride that wants to move up further to a place of honor. And then the humiliation when the master of the house says, uh, there's somebody here more honorable than you. You need to go sit at the, at the kitty table over there, okay? <laughs> this, we're, we're saving this table for the grown-ups. You can go sit at the kids' table in the next room, all right? How about James and John that were trying to rope some assigned seating for, for heaven, right? They, they said, oh, and they brought their mother in on the act saying, you know, we want to sit on your right hand and on your left hand in, in the kingdom of heaven. And they got their mother in on the deal to try to influence Jesus on that. Jesus said, it's not for you, it's not for me to determine. My Father determines the seating assignments in heaven. But here's dissatisfaction with his seating. And to sit on the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, he's not entitled to that throne. 
but Jesus Christ is. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. Here's, here is uh, I will number four. This is a challenge to Yahweh himself. Yahweh is the one who sits enthroned above the clouds. Yahweh is the one who created all these angels to begin with. But I don't think uh, Satan believes him. I will make myself like the Most High. He is going to dethrone God the Father himself. Never lose sight of that, see? Never lose sight of that. I think there's all this press and all this attention about Antichrist, okay? Because of the figure that he is, the eschatological role that he's going to play, Antichrist is an end times figure. But who births him? Antifather, right? Satan births Antichrist. Satan sets himself up as a counterfeit God the Father. He says, I will be like El Elyon, the Most High God. I will be the counterfeit father. That's why he produces an Antichrist. That's why Satan produces an only begotten son. That's why Satan leads forth in terms of the anti-trinity we read about in the book of Revelation with the dragon, the, the Antichrist, and the false prophet, the counterfeit Holy Spirit at that point. All right? He gives breath to the image. He's the counterfeit Holy Spirit if you ever study the book of Revelation. And so here's his five I wills. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And he's 0 for 5, by the way. Still to this day, he has failed to achieve any of this. And for all eternity, he will never achieve anything. How can you be like the one for whom there is no one like? Okay? God is, I am. God is, and there is no other. There is no other being in the universe that is self-existent, uncreated, uncaused. The pure actuality of being, of I am. Every one of us, every angel, every human, everything except for God became. Right? Became. I became a pastor. I became a father. I became a husband. I became a person. I have not eternally been me. None of us have. Satan has not eternally been Satan. There's the day he was created in Ezekiel 28, verse 12. From the day you were created, Satan is a created being. Can you imagine what that day was like? None of us, at least most of us, I'll speak for myself, I don't remember the day of my birth. Okay, I don't think any of us do. Who does, right? Nobody. But you remember probably age three, age four, at some point you start to have some dim memories of your childhood. Who, nobody remembers the day of their birth. But I believe Adam remembered the day of his creation for the next 930 years. When he opens his eyes and he has adult conscious, conscience awareness of who he is and where he is, all the angels in their created state, the day they were created, he said, they were prepared and I placed you there. From day one, these angels were created beings Adult angel created beings, okay? Not the baby cherub angels of artwork, okay? That's all just mythology anyway. Adult angels from the day they're created and they're brought into existence and Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel, Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God, speaks to all of these angels, tells them who they are, who he is, and Satan doesn't believe them. Satan does not believe God. You ever think about that? Because Satan is a liar. And liars think everybody's liars. And liars don't trust anybody because they don't trust themselves. 
And he is a liar from the beginning. Whenever he speaks, he speaks a lie because he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And so the Lord God tells him that he was a created creature and that the Lord God is uncreated, that he is the I am. And Satan says, no, you're not. I'm going to be like you. I'm going to prove that you're not the I am. I'm going to prove that that you're done when I throw you down. And then I will take your place. That's the essence of his five I wills. Okay? If you think about it, (laughs) I'm the oldest of four siblings. And we like to make up things and tell stories about the younger siblings. That's the part of the perks you get when you're the firstborn child. And uh, you, can, you can tell your baby sister about the day the, the police came and left them at the door on the, in a basket on the porch. And how mom and dad took pity on you and we brought you into the house and we kept you ever since. And what's the, what's the younger sibling going to say? They don't remember, okay? But I remember because I was there. You know, I was nine years old when Elizabeth was born or when the police dropped her off, okay? <laughs> and so I, I, I can tell her the real truth. Mom and dad won't tell her, but I'll tell you. See, if you're a younger sibling and somebody that was there before you starts telling you something, well, you may not believe them. Particularly if you're crafty and untrustworthy, and a liar, and full of lust for power? Does Satan believe that God is the great I Am, the eternal, uncreated? He doesn't believe that for a minute. Because, see, a being with a beginning cannot become a being without a beginning. Once you are temporal, once you exist, clearly you're a finite creature if you've had a beginning. A point prior to which you cannot recall because you weren't here. All right? And Satan is that created being, that finite creature who believes that so too is God. That El Elyon must have thrown down somebody before him. That El Elyon, the only reason he's in charge, is not right, it's not fair. Okay? And he believes he can take God's place. I will be like the Most High God. Nevertheless, here's what you will be. Forget your five I wills. Here's God's you will. You will be thrust down to Sheol to the recesses of the pit. Your judgment is coming. Now, does it bug you that it hasn't happened yet? (laughs) It bugs me sometimes. I think, you know, he fell before Adam and Eve were even created. Why not just throw him in Sheol right then and there? And then bring Adam and Eve around. We'd have a lot better time of it. One his plan. See, the plan is it's not only to cast him down, but to cast him down and let him watch these dust creatures. Let him watch humanity. See, humanity is the resolution to the angelic conflict. Satan and all the fallen angels get to watch grace in action. He gets to watch redemption. He gets to watch creatures that don't deserve anything receive everything. While Satan, who thought he deserved everything, receives nothing. The first become last. The last become first. Jesus Christ wasn't the angel of the Lord on the cross. He was the God-man on the cross. He became the firstborn of many brethren, and that's identifying with humanity, not identifying with the angels. So his five I wills are contrasted with the Lord's you will, you will not, and I will. 
Here's what you will do. Here's what you will not do. Here's what I will do. From verse 15 to 20 to 22, you will not be united with them in burial. All of these uh, folks that are cheering to meet you, you actually have a worse outcome than them. You're going to be beneath them in the final uh, layers of the abyss. Prepare for his sons a place of slaughter because of the iniquity of their fathers. They must not arise and take possession of the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon, neem and survivors, offspring and posterity, declares the Lord. I will also make it a possession for the hedgehog and swamps of water. I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. And it becomes a no-go zone. It becomes a demonic prison at that point for the thousand-year reign of Christ. Verses 24 through 27. If you want more on that, I recommend our angelology series. We taught that in conjunction with uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Isaiah returns to the present with the Lord's judgment against Assyria. In verse 24 then, we return back. So after the final word of the taunt to Babylon, I will sweep it with a broom of destruction, declares Yahweh Tzibayoth, the Lord of hosts. Lord Sabaoth, his name. We sing that in uh, A Mighty Fortress. Then verse 24, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, just as I have intended, so it has happened. Just as I have planned, so it will, be stand, so it will stand to break Assyria in my land. Now he returns back to the present. He's done with this great sweeping vision of Satan and Babylon and all the great things. Now he returns to the present. He returns to Isaiah's lifetime. He returns to the 7th century when Isaiah was writing. And he will deal with the Lord's judgment against Assyria. I have planned it. It will stand. God has never once put a plan into motion that failed to be realized What a delight. Now, Assyria has plans, but they're constantly thwarted. Assyria has plans that the Lord is about to thwart. I like that word, thwart. All right. See, Assyria has plans. Assyria has swept away the northern ten tribes. Assyria now is looking at Jerusalem. Assyria thinks there's nothing that can stop us. We will take what we want. And so uh, notice what happens here with Assyria. Um, verse 26 says, this is, the whole, this is the plan devised against the whole earth. This is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. God let Assyria be the tool of his anger. God assigned Assyria the role to discipline that northern kingdom. But what did Assyria do? They got all full of themselves and said, we're going to conquer the world. <laughs> Nobody can stop us. Look at us. Everywhere we go, we win, we win, we win, we win, we win. We can't lose. And so Assyria is so full of themselves. And God says, you're just a tool in my hands. How can you boast? If you might recall from Isaiah chapter 10, can the axe boast itself over the hand that chops with it? You're a tool. The tool gets no glory. The hand that wields it is the one doing the work. So you think you're going to conquer the world, huh? Uh Uh-uh. You're going to fall. For the Lord of hosts has planned, and who can frustrate it? As for his outstretched out hand, who can turn it back? When he reaches his hand out, nobody slaps it aside. 
So Assyria has plans that the Lord is about to thwart. The Lord has plans that cannot be thwarted. Job 42.2. I'm, I'm running a little late on time here because I spend too much time on Satan and his five I wills. But understand, here's some verses for you. Job 42.2. If you think that God's plan can be thwarted, think again. These, these verses should be great encouragements for us in our prayer life. Great encouragement for us and what we're dealing with, what testing we're going through. It doesn't matter whatever test it is. Is it a health test, a financial test, a relationship test? I don't care. It really doesn't matter. Whatever test it is, who's still in charge? God's still in charge. What's he doing with that test? He's accomplishing his purpose. Is his purpose going to be thwarted? He's going to achieve what he wants to achieve. Proverbs 19.21, many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord is the counsel of the Lord that will stand. Quit coming up with your own plan. Get on board with his plan. How about that? Isaiah 8.11, Isaiah 14.24 and 27. Isaiah 46, let me grab a look at that one because that's still 30 weeks away. Isaiah 46, 32 weeks away. We're going to be here uh, next fall sometime. <coughs> Remember this and be assured. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Okay, certainly not that poser who said he would be like me. There is no one who is like me. There is no other me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established. I will accomplish all my good pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. God says it, God does it. You remember the, the, the Charlton Heston Exodus movie, you know, the so it is written, so it is said, so it is done, whatever. Yul Brenner and the, 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 the booming commanding voice of the pride of Pharaoh. Just because he said it, he could make it happen? God says, oh, no, no, no. God's the one who says it and makes it happen. God's the one who says, let there be, and there was. Let there be light, and there was light. All right? Daniel 4.35 and Ephesians 1.11. More reading for you this afternoon. Ephesians 1.11. God works all things after the counsel of His will. He does what His good pleasure, the eternal purpose of His will, determines. Nothing is going to thwart Him. Finally, then, the uh, chapter ends, verses 28 and following. It's kind of an unfortunate chapter division. If it was me, I would have ended it there in verse 27 and started a new chapter in verse 28. But I wasn't alive when these were chapterified and versified. But all right. In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. Here's another oracle. Here is actually the first of 10 additional Massah oracles. The book of Isaiah is going to feature 10 additional Massah oracles. And here's the first of these 10. This one is delivered against the Philistines. Do not rejoice, O Philistia, all of you. The first of 10 additional Massah oracles. And we're not going to take the time to plunge into it. Next week we'll come back and we'll look at Moab. We'll look at the, the oracle here in chapter 15. Moab is 15 and 16. Damascus is 17. That's critical, by the way, because it's eschatological. These are all eschatological. Ethiopia, chapter 18. Egypt in chapter 19. 
get a regular uh, geography lesson here in the upcoming Sundays. I hope you can make it. We have to understand the context of the day in which it's spoken, Isaiah's generation, but also eschatologically, what happens when Jesus Christ returns and who are the enemies that Israel's faced with at Second Advent? Who are the enemies that Israel is surrounded by in the, in the great coming tribulation? That's what these chapters are fundamentally dealing with. So, uh, anyway, there's a, a false hope. There's a false joy. They're all excited because Assyria has fallen. Babylon has fallen. The fall of Assyria is a false joy for the Philistines because the rise of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon will spell the removal of the Philistine people from human history. Nebuchadnezzar brings them to an end. They disappear from history with the uh, onset of Babylon. The Palestinians today try to claim that they're the, they're the legacy of the, of the Philistines. As if Philistine and... Well, I mean, etymologically, that's why the Romans called it Palestine, but the, the, there's no lineage, there's no bi, uh, you know, biological connection between the Arabs today the, and the Philistines of, of uh, the Old Testament times. They were, a, uh, they were not a uh, Semitic people. Only by identifying with the covenant nation. I've got to leave you with this. It's how the chapter ends. Only by identifying with the covenant nation, that's Israel, and paying heed to Jewish messengers can a Gentile people group find refuge in, in Zion. The only refuge in the tribulation is Zion. The only salvation is from the Lord. The only rescue is to heed the Jewish messengers. There are going to be 144,000 of them. 12,000 from each tribe. They're going to spread and they're going to spread over the globe. They're going to deliver a message of salvation, both eternal salvation of the soul and physical salvation of rescue. Only paying heed to Jewish messengers can a Gentile people group find refuge in Zion. How then will one answer the messengers of, of the nation, the covenant nation of God on earth, that Yahweh has founded Zion and the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in it? Atea, the United States better figure this out pretty quickly. Genesis 12 is still valid. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. And it seems that our present national government government is considering sanctions against the Jewish people. From what I've read, our current administration is seeking sanctions against Israel. They're going to side with the Arabs. They're going to side against Israel. And they're going to open themselves up for Genesis 12, 3 judgment. And that grieves me. That, that right there is the one biblical standard for national judgment right there. Bigger than anything else in the entire Bible talks about. If we bless the Jewish people, this, this land has been a blessing for the Jews since before, going back to the 1600s, this land has been a blessing for the Jews. And I'm starting to wonder, all right, where are we headed? Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for this chapter. Father, I thank you for your son, this is the Christmas season, Father, that we identify with his humble birth and the joy and the delight of the humble son born in the manger. But Father, that was his first advent. He lived his life. He went to the cross. He achieved the victory. 
And when he comes back again, Father, he will not be in a virgin birth. He will not be in a manger. He's not going to be humble riding on a colt. He's going to be victorious riding on a white horse. And the sword that proceeds from his mouth will slay the wicked. And Father, we too will be following on white horses as the heavens are opened and the armies of heaven descend. Father, there is coming a day. There is coming a day. I thank you, Father, for these prophetic studies. I thank you for believers that study to show themselves approved. I thank you for brothers and sisters in Christ that realize that the Christian way of life is is, uh, not a cakewalk, Father. It is a struggle. It is a conflict. There are lessons to be learned. There are victories to be won, battles to be fought. But all of them are made possible because of your Son, who He is, what He accomplished. I pray that on this day we might identify with Him and accomplish all the work you have sent for us to do. And I do thank you, Father. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.